Take your Bible, if you would, this morning. Find the book of Philemon. Philemon is uh, just to the left of Revelation. If you go to Revelation, last book of the Bible, you've gone too far. But you've got to be careful because Philemon is the shortest letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. As you're finding Philemon, which may take you a second or two, I want to invite all of our guests to Discover Hillcrest today, either here or at Spanish Trail. Dan will give you Spanish Trailers some information about Discover at Spanish Trail uh, a little bit later on. Uh, for those of you here at Nine Mile, it's at 4 o'clock this afternoon, and I'll be there. And uh, if you're thinking about joining our church or just want more information about our church, Discover Hillcrest is a must. And so I hope to see you there 4 to about 6 tonight, and we look forward to it. It's going to be a great time uh, this evening. Well, I'm excited to begin a new series of messages in a small letter, compact letter, weighing in at only 335 words in the Greek New Testament. Contrast that to the book of Jeremiah, for example, which has almost 35,000 words, and you'll get the picture that the letter to Philemon is very, very brief, but it's very, very important because it's chock full of the gospel particularly as it relates to relationships. Sometimes a short letter gets overlooked because it's brief. We go to the bigger letters where we can dig deep and spend a little bit of time. But Philemon is noteworthy, not just because of its brevity, but um, because of what it talks about. It's short in length, and it's very narrow in terms of its focus. Philemon is about a broken relationship between a man and his runaway slave. And uh, the slave escapes, probably takes some money from his master, and he goes on the run all the way to Rome from where he had been in the city of Colossae. While he's in Rome, he finds the apostle Paul. You don't think that's a divine encounter he finds the apostle Paul and Paul spends a lot of time with him leads the slave to faith in Jesus Christ and he spends a good bit of time there in Rome with Paul and after a while Paul decides that he doesn't need to have a broken relationship with his master and so Paul determines he's going to do an intervention spiritually. He's going to get in between these two men, and he's going to send the slave back, which is a very risky thing to do. And he's going to encourage Philemon to forgive him for any offenses and receive him back for what he has begun, uh, become, namely, a fellow brother in Jesus Christ. Something that, now, if Philemon does that, you talk about doing something radical in the first century culture of the day, that would have been a profound decision on his part, even to the point of being revolutionary on his part. But you know, as I think about it, isn't that exactly what the gospel of Christ is? Profound, transformational, revolutionary, especially when it comes to the various relationships with our life, our relationship with God, our relationship with our spouse, 
our relationship with our kids, our relationship with our church, our relationship with our friends, our relationship with our neighbors, everything changes when our life is changed through a personal encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're calling this series, going to be a brief series because it's a brief letter, four Sundays, four messages, and I'm going to call this series Living the Gospel because the bottom line is, the question on the table is, is Philemon not only going to profess the gospel, but by his actions, is he really going to live the gospel? And the gospel is not something that's just meant to be heard. The gospel is not just something that's meant to be received or accepted. The gospel is something that's meant to be lived. It's a life-changing gospel. And I think the most immediate way, the most obvious way that we live the gospel is in the relationships of our lives. I'm telling you, if the gospel hasn't changed your relationships, the gospel probably hasn't changed your life. And the gospel is the good news about not only what God has done for us in the gift of Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins, as we talked about last week, change us from the inside out so that we can receive the gift of righteousness and connect with God now and for all of eternity. But the gospel is also good news about what it can do for the relationships of our life if we're committed to doing life and relationships together God's way. And this is what the brief little letter of Philemon is all about. Now this morning we're going to take a very quick stroll through the first seven verses of Philemon. And so Let's see if we can glean some of these components of gospel-centered relationships, which is the theme of our remarks this morning. Let's stand together, why don't we, as we honor the reading of God's Word in His house today. Philemon, you don't say chapter because there's only one. And so when I say Philemon 7, that's verse 7 of the only chapter in the letter. And we begin with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the living, breathing, eternal word of the living God, and let all God's people say, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, asking you to do what only you can today. My words don't matter It's the Word of God that matters. My words won't change anything, but today the Word of God can do everything as the Spirit of God takes these words, your words, and plants them deep within our heart. Do that today, God, that it may result 
in real and lasting life change for every single one of us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. It's interesting that as we begin this morning, Paul, as he customarily does, as he writes a letter, you read any of the 13 letters of Paul, and all of them are going to have this one thing in common. They have an introduction where Paul gives some opening remarks, and usually there are two or three things that are always there. Paul identifies himself, and then Paul addresses with a salutation whomever it is he's writing, whether it's a church or an individual. And then Paul gives a blessing, kind of a beginning invo uh, invocation, and that's what you see him doing here. The first thing he does is he introduces himself. And he does so in an unusual way. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Interestingly, it's the only place in the Bible that he identifies himself as a prisoner. Most of the time he uses the word apostle, but he's not going to play the apostle card here because he's writing to a dear friend. Most of the time he addresses himself as an apostle because people are talking about him or throwing him under the bus or saying he really wasn't an apostle. And so he offers his apostolic credentials as a means of establishing his authority, but doesn't need to do that because he's writing to a good friend here. And he merely, unusually so, but merely identifies his current status as a gospel minister. And indeed, he is in fact in Rome under house arrest in the great city for preaching the gospel. And it's an important imprisonment because he'd do a lot of writing while he was there. Your letter in your Bible, your letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, and the letter to the Colossians were all written at the same time that Paul writes the letter to, the, uh, to Philemon, his friend. And so these are called the prison correspondence of the Apostle Paul. So it was a very productive time in his life. So that's the first thing he does. He identifies his condition. He is a prisoner. Then he addresses his audience, which in this case uh, is primarily one person, though there are a couple of other individuals sprinkled in there. And the person that he's writing to, someone he's very well acquainted with, and the person to whom he's writing is definitely not a prisoner. He's a very wealthy man. He's a man that's done well in life, Philemon. And Philemon was likely a very wealthy Greek that Paul had met and led to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Probably, though we don't know this for sure, when Paul was establishing the church in Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, longer than he spent in any other location during his time planting churches. And it was probably there in Ephesus, whether Philemon was living there or just there on business, traveling through, we don't know. But they probably connected there and developed a relationship, established a common bond. And Paul led his now friend Philemon to faith in Jesus Christ. By the time we're introduced to him here in this letter, Paul is writing to him in his home at Colossae. And Philemon had become an important church leader because Paul will identify the church that meets in his what? You remember? In his house. That's right. And so he's an important church leader. Part of the church anyway may not have been the whole church. They probably couldn't get them all in one house. But this was a house church movement and a good portion of them certainly met in Philemon's home. Along with Aphia. And Archippus, probably his wife and his son, though this is all we know about them and we're not even sure about that, but they're probably a family. And all of that's well and good. But you know something else we know about Philemon? He owns slaves. 
he was a slave owner. I mean, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that. You just read through the letter, and it'll only take you three or four minutes, five minutes to read the whole letter. Not very long. He's a man who's full of faith in Jesus Christ. He's a man who's active in the gospel ministry. He's a man whose love for God and whose love for the church overflows. Paul goes out of his way to note these very important, fundamental, gospel-centered uh, uh, things about Philemon's life. But all that having been said, he's also a man who's a slave owner. Now, can we just say this morning as we begin to study this letter, that's the elephant in the room? That's the 800-pound gorilla that you've got to wrestle with as you study through the letter to the Philemon? It's the thorny part of properly interpreting this very important letter. There are major themes in Philemon. Forgiveness is a big theme. Reconciliation is a big theme. Those are the overarching themes in the letter to Philemon. But you still have to grapple with the slavery question as it comes to early Christianity, something a lot of people have questions about. And we will surely do that. If you come back next Sunday, we'll open up a Pandora's box and talk a little about that, what it meant then, why it's important, what was the Apostle Paul's approach to that vile and evil institution? But to properly interpret it, you have to come to grips with that. And so today we simply mention that, and we're going to leave it hanging for the next seven days. Because to do that would be to deal with it today, be getting ahead of ourselves. Today I simply want to introduce the letter by reminding everyone that this is a piece of correspondence about living the gospel with and among one another. That's really what it's about. And so from these introductory verses, I want you to take away with me this morning three very important things that mark gospel-centered relationships, at least from these opening verses. These aren't the only things, and we'll hit two or three more as we go along in the days ahead. But write this down. What is it that marks true gospel-centered relationships. Well, the first is the dynamic of prayer. In gospel-centered relationships, we remember one another in prayer. Have you ever noticed as you're reading through the Bible, particularly the letters of Paul, that Paul often prays for his friends? And he mentions prayer in almost every introduction to every letter that he ever writes. And the reason that he does that is because he knows that this is a non-negotiable in healthy relationships. You're really not going to have healthy relationships to speak of if you're not praying for those relationships, at least as it relates to relationships as a believer within the body of Christ. He often begins each letter that he writes with this statement about telling the church how thankful he is for them and how he constantly remembers them in his prayers. He will tell that to the Philippians. He'll tell that to the Ephesians. He'll tell it to the Colossians. He will remind the Thessalonians of everything that he's heard about them, their faith, their hope, and their love, and that causes him to well up with great joy every time he remembers them in prayer. He says the same thing to the church at Rome in his letter to the Romans. He says the same thing even to the Corinthians, as messed up a people as they were. The Corinthians were hopelessly divided. And yet when Paul writes them in his first piece of correspondence, 1 Corinthians, he goes out of his way to tell them how much he loves them, how joyful he is about who they are and what they're becoming in the Lord and how profoundly he prays for them as a part of his daily life. 
and they were messed up people. So when it comes to growing in love, when it comes to mending broken fences, when it comes to learning to be like Christ and overlooking offenses, when they inevitably happen in the relationships of your life, I'm just saying this morning, it sounds elementary and it sounds rudimentary, but it's often not the first thing we do. It's often not even on our radar screen. I'm just saying this morning, there is no more fundamental, important, dynamic, and healthy, growing, thriving, gospel-centered relationships than prayer, than prayer. Paul gives thanks to God here in verse number four. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, which is a statement that his friend was on his mind and in his heart. But more to the point, it's a statement that Paul regularly prayed for churches that were important to him, for people who were important to him. And I, you know, when, when, if I were hearing this, if I were Philemon and I got a piece of correspondence from Paul, somebody that I didn't get a letter from every day, someone that I highly respected and valued, and the first thing out of his mouth is, I thank God when I remember you in my prayers, that's going to really encourage me to hear that. It's just a powerful statement to make to an individual. One of the most important, I think. I talk to people a lot who are not in healthy relationships, as you can imagine. And whenever I, I encounter somebody that's in a messed up relationship, they're bitter, they're angry, they're resentful to the point of even being hostile toward another person, you know one of the first things I ask them? And when I ask them this question, they always look at me like I've just fallen off of a spaceship from Mars. Well, let me ask you this. Are you praying for that person? Are you praying for this relationship? And they look at me cross-eyed, which, of course, usually means that they're not. I mean, I ask them, here's the deal. The Bible says you're in a hostile relationship, whether it's somebody that you love or whether it's an enemy. The Bible says we're supposed to pray. Pray for those who spitefully use you. The Bible says bless and do not curse. And so I ask the person, are you praying and invoking the active blessing of God on that person? Why would I do that? Well, because God says it's the mark of somebody that's mature in Christ. And you know why that's important? I'm telling you, try as you might, it's really hard, if not well nigh impossible, to hate somebody that you're asking God to be a blessing to. I mean, if you're praying for somebody, it's going to soften you toward that person. I'm not asking you to excuse everything the person does or to even overlook it. Although the Bible says it is to a man's credit to learn to overlook an offense. And some of us would live healthier lives if we, looked over, if we learned to overlook some stuff rather than constantly chewing it up like a bad piece of gristle over and over again. No maturity learns to overlook these things and it learns to invoke the blessing of God in a person's life. As counterintuitive is that may seem, because I'm just telling you, you can't hate somebody and be praying for them regularly at the same time. This is why prayer is so important. And what a neglectful thing to fail to pray for those you love. I mean, not only those that you're in an antagonistic relationship with, but sometimes we fail to even pray for those people that we're in the best relationships with, which is usually a recipe for things to go wrong down the road. 
No, you want to pray for people while times are good. Amen. You want to pray for people that you love. We did a baby dedication just a couple of weeks ago. We do them on Sunday nights two or three times a year, bring the families in. A couple of baby dedications ago, we had 19 babies that we dedicated in one service. We did one two or three weeks ago, and I was sharing with those parents. They get their own message along with all their families that are in there. The Northwest Hall is usually packed. And one of the things that I do typically is I share the top 10 things that Judy and I did in raising our kids. Uh, we don't share the ones that we would not try again. There's some things that we did that, that were not smart and didn't work, and we conveniently leave those out of our discussion. But then there are several things that we did that if we had to do the journey all over again, if we went back in a time machine and did it all over again, we'd do it exactly the same way. And you know what the first thing on that list of 10 things, we'd do it exactly the same way again if our kids were babies and we had 20 years on the horizon. The first thing on the list is we prayed for our children and we prayed with our children. Man, I got stuff on there about technology. I got stuff in there about reading. I got stuff in there about discipline. But none of those stuff, none of that stuff is more important than our decision. I prayed for my children when they were still in their mother's womb. And it's a strange thing for somebody to look at you and see you talking to your wife's belly. But I did. I prayed for our first one. The Lord decided to take that one to heaven before it was born. But I prayed for every one of them. Then we prayed with them, prayed over them in the crib, prayed with them in the bed, prayed with them before they went to school. In fact, we prayed with them before they went to school when they were seniors in high school, holy huddle in the kitchen every Sunday. My kids, my 18-year-old kids would go to the spot on the floor in the kitchen and wait for me because we prayed before we engaged the day. Now they've flown the coop. My boy's back this morning. Seth is with us today. And in his presence, he needs to know that his mother and daddy, probably, we probably pray for our kids more now that they're gone than we did when they were at home because I'm not there to fix it anymore. I'm not there to hand them a $10 bill anymore. In fact, I refuse to do that most of the time. No, we listen, the prayers run deep. Talk about pray without ceasing. I think about those kids. I pray when I'm driving. I pray when I'm walking down the hallway. Whatever, God brings them to mind. In gospel-centered relationships, we remember one another in prayer. We pray for those we love. And let me just tell you, I'm never more blessed as a pastor than when people tell me that they are praying for me. I get cards from y'all all the time, emails. You don't know how much those are appreciated. I was finishing this message about midday on Friday, finishing the first draft of the message. I just finished it, and literally within an hour after closing the lid on my computer, my phone buzzed, and it was a friend of mine that I hadn't heard from in a while from over in Jacksonville, a senior adult friend that I've served on some boards with in the state of Florida. And at 2.33 in the afternoon last Friday, I got a text message from him, and here's, just, here's all it said. You were just prayed for. After I just finished writing a message about the importance of prayer in part. I just blessed my heart. You're talking about meaningful? That was really meaningful. 
And when I think of the times in my life I've gone through lonely, we all go through lonely, dry, barren seasons, every one of us. Times when we don't know how we're going to make it. And then we make it. God shows up and brings us through it. When I think about those times like that in my life, I'm always reminded, the Spirit of God always reminds me, Jim, there were people who were praying for you that you knew absolutely nothing about. It's so very important. Those prayers make all the difference. So in gospel-centered relationships, the healthy ones are those that are bathed in prayer. We remember one another in prayer. Secondly, in gospel-centered relationships, the Bible teaches here that we respond with one another in ministry. We not only pray for one another, we serve the Lord with one another, and it's through the gospel ministry of serving together as a people that healthy relationships grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Serving others, ministering the gospel of Christ together. It's not only an important aspect of following Jesus, critical component of gospel relationships. In fact, most of you should know it's one of our three core values at Hillcrest. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ by worshiping God, connecting with others, and what? Serving the world. So it's that important. We worship God, connect with others, uh, one another. I'll talk about that in a second. But serving the world, serving each other, serving the church, serving the community, serving the lost even. Paul prays for his friend Philemon, and he says here in verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The English Standard Version that I'm using today, as with the New International Version, I think, uses the phrase, the sharing of your faith, and I don't think that's the best way to translate it because it's misunderstood a lot. When I say the sharing of your faith, most of you will think about a verbal witness to Jesus Christ, testifying proclaiming the gospel to a friend or, or whatever. And that is a part of it, and it's very, very important, something that we obviously should do. I just don't think, give, when Paul says the sharing of your faith, I don't think he's talking about giving a verbal gospel witness here. The word sharing there is the Greek word koinonia that most of the time in your New Testament is translated fellowship. And so many of you be using translations today that render it that way, and that's the way it should be rendered. The fellowship of your faith, sometimes partnership. Paul's giving thanks for the gospel ministry partnership, the fellowship that he had together with Philemon in doing gospel work. Does that make sense? So what we basically mean here is that Philemon was a co-laborer together with Paul, and Paul is acknowledging and he's remembering the good times that they had probably in Ephesus and then later in Colossae where they did gospel work that resulted in the growth of the church, and they did it together. And Paul is acknowledging that. You've been significant in the ministry of the gospel where you have lived since the time of your faith in Jesus Christ. And as I remember you in my prayers, I can't help but think about the importance of your gospel partnership together with me. And I couldn't have done it without you. Does that make sense? That's what he's acknowledging here. They ministered the faith together by serving others in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's how Eugene Peterson renders verse number six in his translation called The Message. He says, 
I keep praying that this faith we hold in common keeps showing up in the good things we do and that people recognize Christ in all of it. That's the idea. That's what Paul's praising God for in his prayers concerning Philemon the good things that they did together and that they would continue to do together in order to make much of Christ so that the sake of Christ is recognized by a lost and dying world. This is an important statement. Paul is basically remembering things that happened in the past between the two of them working together and the partnership that they'd had in the past. But it really, when you read the rest of the letter, you understand that that's really kind of a set-up statement because Paul's getting ready to make the big ask. Now, Philemon doesn't know about it yet. The church is gathered. You remember these letters when the courier came, and in this case it was probably Tychicus, when he came bearing the letter, the church was called together, and it was publicly read out loud to the church. And can't you imagine as Philemon is hearing this letter read, and Paul is saying, man, every time I think of you, I pray about you. I remember your faith, an incredible faith, and your love for the saints. And and I remember our gospel partnership together, how we shared faith together in the work, in the vineyard. And don't you know that Philemon is going, yeah, man, he's feeling good. But he didn't know what's getting ready to come, and we haven't even read it here, but you need to know that this is a setup. Paul is basically going to say, listen, as much good as you've done in your past, What's going to happen is the curtain is going to be pulled back and there's going to be a runaway slave behind it. And everybody's going to go. And Paul's going to say, now, remember all that good that you've done with me in the past? Now it's time to do some real good for the days ahead where you can be a revolutionary in your own Greco-Roman world. But again... I'm getting ahead of myself. That's why this is a set-up statement. He's got Philemon feeling really good, but there'll be more to come, and he's going to encourage, as good as things have been in the past, let's keep going together in the future. And one of the ways you can show that you're sold out to Jesus is by being willing to reconcile with a wayward brother and let the wayward brother reconcile with you. It's an important thing. Forgive him. Receive him back but more about that to come. For our purpose today, we're talking about our relationships, gospel-centered relationships. You need to be reminded, we not only share a common faith together, we are to minister a common faith together. Did y'all hear me? Say amen. We share it, but it's not just about believing it together. It's about doing something with it together. It's, Christianity is more about coming to church and sitting beside one another. Now, for far too many people, this is all that Christianity is, coming and setting, setting, slapping each other on the back, maybe shaking a few hands, and that's an important part. But Christianity is not just about coming and setting together. It's about going and serving together. It's about impacting the world, being salt and light. And ministry is just a critical component of growth. You're not happy with where you are in your growth Well, maybe because you're not serving. You may be coming, you may be listening, you may be hearing. But I'm telling you, real growth happens when you engage and you exercise your faith spiritually, when you serve the Lord together. You know why? Because I'm telling you, there's some things about Jesus that you cannot learn simply by sitting down and reading a book or going to a study. 
as important as all things are, and we should do those. Some things you can only learn through the active participation of gospel ministry where you serve the Lord by serving people. So the question is, what's my growth track? Am I coming and setting and that's it? Or am I also going and serving? I love the passage in Nehemiah chapter 3 where the people come together under the leadership of Nehemiah to rebuild the broken walls that had been torn down. You remember that story? The great book of Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem that went around the circle. They're in tatters. They're broken. They've been burned. And Nehemiah sees that. God calls him to go back, lead, rebuild, uh, lead the rebuilding effort, and he does that. And the miracle about Nehemiah's leadership is how he mobilizes all these Jewish people to come and work together to get it built in like colossally impressive record time. I mean, when people work together, you know, it's an amazing thing. It may take a construction crew two or three years to build a bridge, but if a hurricane blows through and destroys it, they can have it operational within a week if they want to. And so Nehemiah goes back and says, man, we can do this, but it's going to take everybody working together. And then you get to Nehemiah 3, and there's this wonderful statement. Next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him, Nehemiah orders about 40 work groups, and he places them in strategic places along the circumference of the wall, side by side together. And there are all kinds of people. There are clergymen. There are officials, political officials, civic officials, Common everyday laborers, they're all in it together, and they're all next to one another, next to him, 15 times in chapter 3 alone, next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him. And they rebuild, and they're on different gates. Some of them are at the Fountain Gate. Some of them are at the Damascus Gate. Some of them are at the Sheep Gate. The Bible says some of them got the Dung Gate, or what we would call the Poop Gate. But they didn't care. Because it didn't matter who got the credit. They were just doing it together. Partnership and unity. Serving with one another to accomplish a mission. Not that would glorify themselves, but to glorify God. And that's what Paul says to Philemon. We work together, man, and we accomplish some great things for the sake of Christ. Not so that we could look good, but so that we could magnify his name and make much of him in the world. And that is exactly what they did. There's now this thriving church in Colossa. And Philemon is helping to lead it. And that just brought joy to Paul when he remembered their gospel commonality and service. Henry Ford said one time, coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. Thinking together is unity but working together is success. Man, you get people working together in heavy momentum, man, you've accomplished something terrifically great. And that's what gospel-centered relationships are all about. We, are you all with me so far? Amen. We remember one another in prayer. We respond with one another in ministry. And finally, for this morning, we refresh one another in community. You know, God has said early on, it's in the book of Genesis, after God had made Adam, it is not good for the man to be what? Not good for the man to be alone. So God has established from the very beginning of the Bible the importance 
of relationships, the importance of community. Christianity all over the New Testament is a one another faith. We have all these commands to love, serve one another, love one another, respond to one another, bear one another's burdens, all these one another's because we're to do life together. We're not to be lone rangers. We're in a community of faith. It's called the church. The church is a bunch of people, all identified by their common faith in Jesus Christ. And not only is serving the world one of our core values, connecting with others is one of our core values. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ, growing as disciples, by worshiping God, connecting with others, and serving the world. And so we do that because it's a biblical mandate. We are created by God to connect in community. And the thing about the letter to Philemon is that you can't separate what Paul is trying to accomplish in the life of this one man, Philemon, from the larger church at Colossae. I mentioned a moment ago that the church, or at least many of them, would have been called together to hear the reading of this letter from the great apostle Paul. It would have been an electric energy in the room. And again, this is another encouragement. What an encouragement to Philemon, not only to be reminded about their gospel ministry together so that the whole church hears about it, but how much it would have encouraged him to hear from his brother here in the next verse, verse 7, because the hearts of the saints. Paul says, not just me. You've not just been a blessing to me. You've been a blessing to everybody around you. The hearts of the saints have been what? Say it out loud. Refreshed through you. This is a kind of a footnote uh, on Paul describing Philemon as having this great love for the saints. He gives a little example here using this word refreshment. Have you all ever noticed that in every relationship, you have the opportunity to either refresh somebody or drain somebody. You have the opportunity to either encourage somebody or discourage somebody. You have the opportunity to bring a smile to somebody's face or to put bags under their eyes. And what a blessing. This is a great word, refresh, because that's what Philemon did. The word there is the same one that Jesus used in one of the most recognizable statements he ever made from Matthew 11. I quote it a lot. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the same word. I will refresh you is what Jesus is saying, which you need rest to be refreshed, right? But it's exactly the same Word, I will revitalize you. I will revive you. I will relieve you. I will refresh you. And this was Philemon. Whatever he did, however he acted, Philemon was an encourager who lifted the spirits of his brothers and his sisters in the Lord. And again, this is a setup job because God, Paul's getting ready to drop a bomb on him here in a minute. By saying, now let me give you another opportunity to be refreshment, not to me. The curtain goes back, but to this brother right here. So it's really important. What will he do? We await with bated breath to find out. Not everybody refreshes other people. People can be hard to live with. I heard that chuckle over here somewhere. 
People can be, I, re, I love the story. Some people get on to me for telling this story, but I really like it. About the time the devil invaded the church, little country church, and the devil just broke in the back door and he came in. Everybody saw him, immediately recognized him, started running for the back exits, except this one guy sitting right here on the front row, this old church curmudgeon. And he's sitting right there, and the devil came up to him, and he said, aren't you afraid of me? The old guy said, I'm not scared of you, ain't scared. Well, don't you know who I am? I know exactly who you are. And you're not afraid of me. No, I'm not afraid of you, ain't scared. Why not? And the old codger looked back and said, for over 50 years, I was married to your sister. I ain't scared of nobody. Don't send me any emails, ladies. Don't do it. It's funny. It's a funny story. Let's just say that old guy was looking for refreshment. They've been refreshed in a day in his life. It goes without saying, healthy relationships are hard work, aren't they? I mean, you know, you want to, you want to, affirmation, just ask the people in our church been married 40, 50, 60 years. Have to work at it every step of the way. That's because we're all broken by sin. Sin has messed us up. It makes living together difficult. This is not the Garden of Eden anymore. This world is not even heaven. Sin has corrupted everything, and that's what makes it hard work. And it's hard work because so much in a broken world, so much of the New Testament gospel is counterintuitive. Love your enemies. What? Bless those who persecute you. Keep no record of wrongs. What? Honor one another above yourselves. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. See, those are hard things to do. Those are things you can do by the Spirit of God. But I'm telling you, none of that stuff comes naturally, and they're only things that you can do in and through the living, dwelling, and uh, abiding Spirit of God within you. Only the Holy Spirit can do that through you. But you can do it. And when you're living an abiding relationship with Jesus, walking in the Spirit of God, you'll learn to say to one another, as Jesus says to you with extended arms, come unto me and let me refresh your life. That's what it means to be Christ-like. Gospel-centered relationships. That's what we're to be about at Hillcrest. We remember one another in prayer we respond to one another in community, and we refresh one another. We respond to one another in ministry. We refresh one another in community. In the days ahead, let's live this way, and by so doing, live the gospel in a way that's obvious. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen and amen.